0: Luke 7, verse 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. It's my pleasure to visit with you today. It's uh, something I've been meaning to do for a while, but this last, past winter has been a I've been a little bit off all winter. You know, you, most even, even at 80 years old, you don't need t- more than 10 or 12 hours sleep a day. And I was needing that. Anyway, so. anyways, slowed me down a bit. It's good to be with you. You've just heard Christ's commendation of the Centurion's great faith. And against that, I want to set for your, get you thinking in the direction of this passage, set a phrase, a statement you'll hear all kinds of times. You weren't healed because of your lack of faith. Or more generally, from many Christians, not just the faith healers, uh, if you had more faith, you wouldn't have these problems, whatever the problems may be. And these statements, a lot of us tend to accept because they put a finger on a fear many of us have. We, have, we sense that our faith is we, we don't respond to God the way we ought to. We know that. But brothers and sisters and friends, the faith healers are wrong. The people who tell you that you suffer these things because your faith is weak are wrong. As we see here, they're wrong because miraculous healing depends on God's power, not on the power of faith. The centurion recognized this very clearly. The real issue we face is not Need for strong faith. That's great to have. That's a good thing. But what we need is faith in a strong God. At one point, a little later in Luke's gospel, we read about it. The apostles asked Jesus to increase their faith. And there and elsewhere, he said, the size of the faith wasn't what mattered. But it's reality. He said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, and a mustard seed is Really, really tiny, you know. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it will obey you. The smallest measure of faith is enough to work wonders for God. Today we want to learn, above all, that the faith that counts is trust in the Almighty God. Sorry, this makes things awkward and turning pages and what have you too. (laughs) Two important lessons in our text today I want you to take home. Underlying the passage, not explicit and upfront in it, but underlying the passage is the understanding that you don't have to be special to come to God. Jesus welcomes everyone who comes to him in faith. It doesn't matter your skin color, your language, your social position is not an issue, your good reputation or morals are not demanded for access. If you turn to him in faith, he receives you. And then he begins to change the things that need changing in you. This is unlike virtually every other religion where first you've got to get fixed up whatever's wrong and then you can come and be part of it. But Jesus says, I take you. And I fix you. The focus of the passage, the second thing, is Christ's power and the meaning of faith in Him. We're called here to recognize the power of Jesus Christ our Lord. Three things need makes you cry to God for help. This is sort of an introductory understanding of what's going on here. God welcomes all who come to him. And when you turn to God, you can trust his power to help you. These three things. First, need makes you cry out to God for help. We see the centurion in need. Here is this Roman soldier living in Galilee. They had, Romans had conquered Israel and were much despised and hated by the Jews because they were not very nice conquerors even if they had a conqueror of any sort of been welcome. A centurion is the backbone of the Roman army. He'd be the equivalent of a sergeant major or a very senior sergeant in our armies, but he carried a broader authority than that, sort of the authority the captain and the troops might have in our day. He had not become a Jewish proselyte, yet he was not a convert to Judaism, but clearly he was one of the God-fearers of that time. The God-fearers is the name that historians give to a group of non-Jews who in that period that Christ came were drawn to the Jews God. A lot of Gentiles at that point. They'd seen the weakness of the gods that their nations worshipped that they grew up with. They'd seen that they weren't very admirable in many ways. And they saw that the God of the Bible was very different. He was worthy of worship because of his purity. And the gods of the day were not particularly pure. And he was worthy because he has real power. And so they associated with the Jewish synagogues, but they held back from becoming Jews, changing their everything about you, in effect, and forsaking everything behind is hard. And later, when the apostles and others went out with the gospel, these God-fearers received the gospel joyfully and flocked into the church. This centurion who seems to be among that group had a servant whom he valued greatly, not just one who was worth more, a lot of money, but one who he really personally cared for, as the passage puts, expresses it. And that servant was sick on the point of death. Matthew says that the servant was paralyzed. It was evident that there was no hope of his being healed by normal means in that time, at least. And so the centurion sought help from God. Nobody else could do what he needed. We read in verse 3, when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. Now, today that seems like a very natural kind of thing to do. You know, it's, yeah, straightforward. Here's this guy, he's got a lot of power. Get him to come and help you. But in that day, it was quite astounding. Pious Jews their elders would be pious Jews, did not associate with Romans if they could possibly avoid it. The Romans were hated and they were unclean, they were sinful, they were outside of God. And the Romans tended to look down on the Jews as superstitious idiots. For a Jewish rabbi to go to the home of a Roman would be looked on with horror by the Jews. It's just, he's, he's supposed to be pure and he's marking himself with impurity. And Jesus was considered a rabbi. And yet in the face of his need, the centurion ignored all those barriers and sought out Jesus' help. He's a very good example for you and for me and our needs to turn to Christ. So let's consider your need and mine. And of course there are, there's a real huge range of needs in this world. Some of them appear to be within human power to resolve. You need your kitchen fixed up. If you've got a reasonable job, you can likely save the money to hire somebody to do it for you. If you don't have that kind of job, you can very well, you may be able to get training and find a job where you, which will allow you to hire somebody to do that work. And worst case, if you're reasonably handy, you can do what I did in the last couple of years, and uh, very carefully and very slowly do it yourself. and Get the job done, even if it takes 12 months instead of 12 days, you know. Needs like this, okay. If your arm is broken, uh, it's usually a routine matter for the doctor to fix it. For my minor break, the only treatment which was needed was to put a cast on it so I didn't uh, damage it while it healed, you know. It's, uh, when you're hungry, you can put together some food or get somebody to do that for you, usually. But all of us space, face needs that human help cannot satisfy. There are illnesses that go beyond the powers of modern medicine. There we suffer losses for which all human comfort just does falls short, it is not enough. We're, we're hurt too badly. We experience failures, we experience lack of satisfaction they leave empty holes in our lives and in some case they leave no purpose that we can see in living and such needs drive us to cry out to god for help as the centurion did even some who deny god's existence find themselves doing that their cars going for the road and say lord help me you know not even thinking if we're wise we turn to god for help even with the things that you can resolve by normal means available in this world. Because all our skills, all our hard labor, they go nowhere without God's support. He's the one who upholds everything. In our needs, we discover that above all, we need God. Food on the table isn't enough to satisfy us. It helps, it's good for our body, but it doesn't bring an answer to our deeper needs. We need the great and true God, the almighty Lord of all creation. He who formed the world and all in it by saying, let there be. He can do whatever he chooses. And when you see God in this light, in this way, you begin to realize how much you need him. And the wonder here is that God welcomes everyone who comes to him. Who's worthy to approach God? You stop and think about it. Who is worthy to approach the high king who never in all eternity has done one thing that's wrong or ugly or evil or hateful? Who holds all things in his hands? Who's worthy to come to such a God? The centurion saw that he was not worthy. He certainly did not expect Jesus to come to him. He, when he learned that Jesus was coming, he said, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Verse 6. He didn't even consider he was worthy to go and see Jesus. He got mediators to come on his behalf. This probably was due to the understanding he had gained in his association with the Jews, their Jewish Holiness Code. In the Old Testament, some of you will be familiar with this, God gave his people a long list of things they should consider unclean, things they should not even touch. If they touched them, they became unclean. They had to be purified. And if you look at that list, you will discover that it's virtually impossible that there was anybody who ever went through a whole day without being unclean more than once. You know, they just were so all-encompassing. They were a visual reminder to the people of their need for purity, a reminder which was to stand until Jesus came and showed them the real purity of a perfect man. But the Jews looked at all those rules, and they didn't see what they said about their need for purification to come to God daily purification, continual purification, they took them as sort of an outward form and thought that if they kept these rules in some degree, then they were acceptable to God, they were okay. And the Gentiles were unclean, unacceptable, because they didn't keep those rules. So this Jewish, this centurion who was interested in the Jewish God would understand that a Jewish teacher like Jesus could not be expected to defile himself by entering the centurion's house. He knew he was unclean. He was unworthy. More obviously to us perhaps his understanding of the greatness of God also showed him his unworthiness. He knew how powerful, how wonderful God was and he said, I don't deserve to come to such a God. He saw the majesty, the glory of God He saw himself in that light. So he couldn't look to Jesus to come to him because Jesus partook of God's holiness and is too pure. That's why he sent and got elders of the Jews. They were presumably more acceptable to God, supposedly at least more acceptable to God, to speak for him. They weren't, but that was the way they were understood to be. And you know, the centurion knew he was unworthy and you and I are unworthy. You learn from this centurion to exalt God's glory, to exalt his kindness, to exalt his justice, his love, his holiness. When you do that, it makes you aware of how far short you fall of it. It makes you aware that you're unworthy. If you take God as your measuring stick, It teaches you real humility. A young runner won all the races in his high school. He was fast. He went to university, he was best on the track team, and he knew he was really fast, and then he ran a race with Usain Bolt. I don't know if all of you recognize that, but he holds the world record in the 100-meter race. Retired from running a few years back. And he was more than five meters behind Bolt when Bolt crossed the finish line. And at that point, he knew how far short he fell of the real excellence of running when he compared to the best. In the same way, if we compare ourselves to other people, the people around us, we can think we're doing pretty well. We do pretty much as well as most anybody around us likely, you know. Maybe better in some ways, worse than others, but it balances out. But when we compare ourselves to God then we see more clearly because it doesn't balance out. Because what we see as a little bit of a flaw is a little bit of a flaw against absolute perfection, you know. It's no longer so little. We see our unworthiness. But the glorious gospel message is that Jesus is Savior for all who come to him. And that means for all of us unworthy ones who come to him because everybody who comes to him is unworthy. He welcomes the unworthy. The Jews had come to think of Jehovah as their God, their nation's God. But the Old Testament, which they were supposed to build on, taught clearly that he is the only God. He's the God for all people and the day was going to come when People of every nation would bow to him. The Jews looked at these things and they thought that's only going to happen when we conquer the whole world and the Jews are best over everything, you know. And they waited the Messiah who they expected would lead them to do that. In their view, to have God's favor, you had to become a Jew, be ruled by the Jews. They would teach the centurion could not expect God to heal his servant because he's outcast. Not unless he forsook his nationality, his background, his family to join and become a Jew. Otherwise he was not worthy. But Jesus rejected this concept. He made very plain that worthiness is not an issue in coming to God. He also, not here but elsewhere, made plain to the Jews' chagrin that uh, they were no more more worthy than any others were. He restored the Old Testament teaching that he is God for all people. He showed that through the centurion, despite being a Roman, despite being unworthy, despite being known as out of the proper people who should follow God, He had God's blessing. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are they poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here was a man who was humbled by his awareness of God. He was poor in spirit, but he was blessed by God. And the Jews were continually found, confounded by those whom Jesus approached. It was very unusual, but some of them at least said that this centurion was worthy of Jesus' help, at least because he helped Jews, so if they, they, we should help him back a bit. They still considered him unclean. But Jesus received him. Jesus associated with those who were the most visible sinners in their society. He ministered to Samaritans, whom the Jews considered uh, people who had broken the true religion and run away. And were, they were enemies. He showed them and told them again and again that he came specifically for those who were sinners in need of salvation. He came to die on the cross for us. He cleanses us who are unclean. He repudiates the idea that any of us are worthy. He opens up the meaning of that Old Testament cleanliness code, and if you follow it out, you see that nobody is pure. Nobody can come to God without any cleaning to do that. By his life and his words, he shows that. And he went to the cross to pay for our sin, our shame, to cover it with his righteousness. He cleanses us, and he makes us worthy in God's sight, and makes us welcome when we turn to God. And you know, when you turn to God, you can trust His power to help. Whatever your problem, he can help. He can fix it. The centurion was a man who knew what authority was. He was in the army. He was an under-officer in the army. When he commanded uh, soldiers, uh, what he told them to do was done. They probably jumped faster for him than for the tribune in charge of the huge wider group. He said, for I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And he did not have to be on the spot to see those things accomplished. He said, go and do that. Somewhere out of his sight it would get done. He understood He had authority, understood that authority comes from above. His authority derived from the Roman government through his senior officers and extended to those placed under him. They did the things he commanded. And he recognized that Jesus has far greater power. It was clear to him that Jesus could heal. Everybody in the the country knew about Jesus' healing. He did not likely yet realize that Jesus was God, but he surely saw him as the Messiah. The Savior, who had God's power entrusted to him. He assumed then that Jesus was a man with authority. He said, I also, like you, I'm a man placed under authority. And he understood that Jesus' authority had been granted to him by God. It was far greater authority than the merely human authority the centurion carried. He had authority from God to command disease and injury to go. And if he had that authority, he didn't have to be present for it to work. This centurion took that step of saying, okay, he can heal. He has the authority. Well, he can heal far away. He doesn't have to be there. He has authority over these things. He recognized the unlimited power of Israel's God. He knew that he's absolute in his power. He was quite accustomed to power within human limits. The Romans exercises over half the known world. He readily extended that to God, who has no limits. Edersheim, in his commentary on these things, wrote, in view of these facts, the question with the centurion would be not could Jesus heal his servant, but would he do so? No question he could. Is he willing? If Jesus chose to do it, it would be accomplished. And he didn't have to come close to do that. This centurion is an example to you as to how you should approach God. Come to him. Come to Jesus Christ without any doubt of his ability to help. He has the power. There's no question. This is where you see the meaning of faith. It's trust. Trust in God. It's confidence in him. Confidence that his power is sufficient for any need. Confidence that he will be glad to do good for you. It's a humble submission to God. You turn to him and say, here's my problem. And he doesn't have to answer to you for what he does. He may choose to do something far different from what you desire. If you walk through your Christian life, you're going to find oftentimes you're saying, I want to go this way. And God says, no, I want you to go this way. He turns you. Believe me, he turned you. You know, though, that he knows best. Because he made it all. He rules it all. He understands everything that you and I don't understand. Leon Morris wrote, It is not so much great faith in God that is required as faith in a great God. You think about it, if the god you serve is one of the gods of human imagination, all the faith in the world will do nothing for you. Odin and Zeus, the top gods of the Norse and Greek pantheons, were very limited. They they weren't the creators of all things, they were sort of like superhumans. They could do things that people couldn't do, but not very much. No matter how huge your faith in them had been, even if they had been real they couldn't have helped you very much. In the next few verses from our passage we see Jesus raising a dead man. He's being carried out to be buried. They couldn't do that. They couldn't touch death. If your fundamental belief is like so many in the world around us now that the world was formed by natural forces apart from God, that that faith will not help you. Such a world runs on random chance and immutable physical laws. And uh, don't ask me how those two go together. You ask them, they'll give you a long run around that doesn't, doesn't answer. But there's no place where faith helps you there. What you need is not great faith but a great god to put that faith in if your trust is in the lord jehovah who created all things in god the father the son and the holy spirit are one god three persons then you are serving a great god you're serving the real god the god who can do whatever he chooses to do And when you put your trust in Him, great things happen. It doesn't matter how big your trust is, it's that your trust is in Him. You know, if you have a little tiny generator, you want to generate some power in the stream behind you to uh, sort of augment your, give you some background things on the back, backstop when the power goes out or something like this. You've got this little generator, and if it's a tiny stream, It doesn't matter how good your generator is, you're not going to get much power. It doesn't push very hard. But if you've got a great river that's dropping 100 meters just behind your yard there, even a small generator will produce a lot of power because there's power in that water moving fast. And this is what you need, a God of power, the God of power, Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Approach him without doubt. Approach him as the almighty God, the Lord of all creation, who is infinite in his power, in his holiness, in his love. There may be some reason he will not do what you ask him to do. I've faced that and many others have and you no doubt will. But if he chooses to help, he will never fail in that help. And if he chooses to direct you elsewhere, you'll discover it was a good thing. Jesus, our Lord, is revealed to you here. He's revealed in the centurion who is an example of faith. And that faith was confirmed by the outcome. Jesus spoke with the messengers and in that very moment, off in the centurion's house, his servant was healed. The centurion understood correctly that he had that power and believed him. He had a true view of God. He has all power in his hands. There is nothing that Jesus, our God, cannot do if he chooses. And he called you to put your trust in him. Don't worry about having great faith. It's not great faith that saves you, but faith in a great God. Come to Jesus in all your unworthiness. Come to Jesus, whatever people say, you can't come because of this, that, or whatever it may be. The centurion was understood by the church of his day. The Jewish people were the church of his day. He was understood by them to be a wicked sinner, unclean, unacceptable to God, barred from approaching God or his people. But Jesus planned to enter that Man's home. He came to save those who are outcasts, those who are unclean, those who are sinful. And He invites you to bring to Him your sin, your guilt, that He may purify you. He won't reject you because of it, He'll take you and purify you. He's able to cure more than physical disease, He's able to cure the diseases of your heart. He can take away your sin. He can equip you to live as God's child in every need. In every legitimate desire, look to the great God. And When you see his greatness, it's easy to trust in him. And as he works in your life, your faith will grow and it will shine. Your joy in Christ will increase throughout this life and into eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being our God, for reaching out to us in our need, for encouraging us to come to you, welcoming us to come to you, for healing us, for caring for us, for providing for us. Thank you for the gift of faith, Grant that we may more and more trust you and trust deeply in you and your Son Jesus and live as your children in the joy of Christ. We ask it in his name and his power. Amen.